We are in Romans chapter 7. And I don't know about you, but I've always loved the book of Romans. And, and, and the thing about it is, is the more I study it, the more I glean from it. It is one of those, one of those, those mines, those gold mines or diamond mines that you find in the Bible that, the, you know, the more you dig, the more you get. And uh, I'm hoping what's, uh, what's being fostered in all of this is that this will not be kind of the end for you. You might say, well, we've studied for the book of Romans, now we can kind of back off the gas a little bit and this, that, and the other. Uh, I pray that that would not be our mindset, that we would actually take these things that we're talking about, take these things that we're learning, and really, really, truly apply them. Not just think about them, not just consider them. The challenge is this, will you still remember what we talked about this morning, this afternoon? What about tomorrow? What about Wednesday? How many people, when we walk in here next Sunday, will have given one single thought to what we consider today? Back again to be fed, but at the same time not actually applying anything that we learned this morning in real and practical ways. The Word of God is living and breathing. It is our food for life. Uh, the book of Romans is a deeply theological book. There's no doubt about it, and I don't know how you feel about theology. Some people think theology, well, that's just for the Bible scholars and you know, the Bible teachers and et cetera and et cetera. It's got nothing to do with me. I'm just one of the common folk who sits in the pew on Sunday morning. Uh, and uh, we, we actually examined a guy on, on Friday, and I was really delighted that Lloyd was able to come and, and be a part of that uh, on Friday. Uh, but one of the questions that I always begin my theology, because I usually do the theology exams, I usually ask them this question, and that is this, is theology for the scholars and for the Bible teachers alone, or is it for anyone else? And I was delighted to hear the guy say yesterday, because that's not always the answer we get, but yeah. Uh, but Friday, he said this, no, 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 theology is for the masses. Theology is for all Christians. And that includes everyone in this room. We've talked a little bit about sanctification up to this point, and this has a lot to do with what's going on with what, what Paul is addressing at this point in his, his letter to the Roman church. Uh, and we said this, that sanctification just simply means to be declared holy or to be set apart for holy purpose. And we understand this, that there's a sense in which where we are right now as a believer, that there is a sense in which we are sanctified. That's what we call positional sanctification. It's not based upon my goodness or my own righteousness. It's based upon the goodness of the righteousness of Christ given to me, granted to me through my faith in Him. And then when God looks upon us, he sees us through that righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
there's also another aspect of sanctification that takes, that's what we call positional sanctification. There's also a progressive aspect of sanctification whereby basically we are growing in holiness. God doesn't want anyone in this room to be stagnated. He wants you to be growing in your faith, and part of that growth in faith is progressive sanctification. In other words, moving more and more away from being controlled by sin in, the, in this world to, to becoming more and more controlled by the holiness of God which has been instilled in us. In other words, what we would call maturing is a believer. Now, the passage before us this morning is one of the most controversial passages you're going to find in all of the New Testament. You're going to find that there are two schools of thought. And let me just read a few verses and then we'll get back to that. Don't let me forget where we're at, okay? We're going to be in, verse, in chapter 7, uh, verses 7 through, let's say, 12. What shall we say then is the law sin, may it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have come uh, to known about covening if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me covening of every kind, for apart from the law, the sin is, sin is dead, and I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and and, di and I died, and this commandment, which was to result in, in life, provided uh, uh, to, to result in death for me, for sin taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. That's what we studied last week. I wanted to read that to put things in context. Verse 13, Therefore did that which is good become a cause of death for me. Paul, another one of those rhetorical questions that he's anticipating people are going to have in regard to what he has just said. And we get the same answer here that we've seen over and over again. May it never be. God forbid that anyone would come to the conclusion that by what I just taught, that's how you're supposed to understand it. May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death to that which is good, that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. Now, just remember this. He's saying now you're sold, sold into bondage to sin. When he just before, in that last chapter, he said that before you were a slave to sin, but now you're a slave to righteousness. Remember those two principles that we've spoken about numerous times over the last few weeks that we always have to keep in mind when it comes to believers in sin and one of those is this is that my sin died with Jesus on the cross that's where the penalty in full was paid for every sin I had ever committed at that point or at this point in my life every sin that I will commit from now on it's all done in the eyes of God that's why we can be positionally sanctified that's the basis upon which God can now say that you are holy. And we can understand that. 
But remember that other principle is this, and that is that even though that is true, there's something else that is also true, and that is that there's a vestige of sin that is still in me, is still active in me. And that is what Paul is talking about in these verses. I said that this was a very controversial passage for this reason. There are some who have concluded in regard to this passage that Paul is talking about the pre-conversion Paul. What Paul was like before he came to faith. There have been some pretty notable people that have believed that. Devout Christians. Over the years. A guy named Abraham Kuyper, who was a very easy, very well-noted theologian. He believes that in what you and I are about to read, Paul is talking about the way he used to be, not the way he is now. John Wesley would also fall into that camp. You may not realize this, but John Wesley believed and he taught that you could, in this lifetime, get to the point where you never sinned anymore. What's called perfectionism. There are Christian churches in this world today who propagate this same idea. The holiness churches, the, the higher life churches. They actually believe that, 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 that believers are able in this world, in this lifetime, to reach a point of sinlessness. So some people fall in that camp. They believe that what Paul's about to say, he's talking about the way he used to be. The vast majority of Bible scholars and theologians through the years have come to a totally different conclusion. Their conclusion that Paul is talking about the current Paul is Paul is writing the book of Romans. That this is what Paul is now experiencing as he puts the pen to the paper. He's describing his own current condition. Now, grammatically, this is an easy argument to make here. The interesting thing is this, is as far as the verbs go up to this point, Paul has been using the errorist or the past tense. Now, in these verses we're going about to read, he starts using the present tense. So what I'm saying is grammatically, if you don't consider anything else, that's very good reason to understand that Paul is talking about Paul as Paul is now. Not as he used to be, but as he is as an apostle, as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ. This is how he describes himself. And if that's true, these people that we've talked about already have to believe this, that it's possible for some folks in the church to reach a plateau of holiness that even the Apostle Paul never reached in his lifetime. Now, what do you think the likelihood of that is? Okay. See, this is what I would argue is that Paul's talking about Paul. And let me just tell you, there's a little practical thing that comes in here, and that is this, is that as I read what Paul's saying about himself, I'm going ditto, 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 ditto. 
It doesn't sound to me like Paul's describing himself. It sounds to me like Paul is describing Keith as Keith is. Not as Keith used to be, but as Keith is today. For that which I am doing, I do not understand, for I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing that I hate. How many times in your life have you sinned and you were doing it knowing fully well that's what you were doing, but you did it anyway? I don't know about you, but it happens to me all the time. But if I do the very thing that I do not wish to do, I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. In other words, it's a law that continues to show me sin. Remember, that was one of the big problems with, with the Jews and the Pharisees is this, is they didn't understand, they, they understood some of the, the, the reasons God had given us the law, some of the purposes of law, but they didn't understand the most fundamental one, and that is this, is that the, 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 the law shows us what sin is. So when we read the law and we look at ourselves, we realize that we don't keep it, that we fall short of it. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. Paul is saying that sin is still part of my picture. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, not in the spirit. He has the spirit to do what God wants him to do, but in his flesh. He still sins. I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I wish I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. That if I'm doing the very thing that I do not wish, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. So what do you think? Does it sound like Paul is describing your, you? And again, what I would say to you, the main reason that we find there's some difference of opinion in here is there are, there are people who believe that they have reached the plateau of holiness in this life. Self-righteous people. And let me just tell you something. There's a, there's a good number of them in the church today. Self-righteous people, let's just be honest, every one of us to some degree is self-righteous. Very often we think far more highly of ourselves than we do of other people. And, and it's not that we would say that I don't ever sin, it's because we can excuse our sin away. We know why we do it and we have reasons for doing it and this kind. We can, we can make reasonable sense of our sin when we look at other people doing the same kind of things and we condemn them for it. What you're going to find very often is this, that in churches that 
propagate this kind of thinking, the people are going to come across as very self-righteous. The world in general, just in a general sense of the word, considers you and I to be self-righteous people, whether we really are or not. That's how the world sees us, as a bunch of people who are willing to tell them what they're supposed to be doing and tell them what they're not supposed to be doing, but at the same time, they don't see us practicing the same things. They see us as a bunch of hypocrites. Now, you need to understand, this is just in general terms, but by and large, this is the picture. And let me tell you, because I was an unbeliever for a good part of my adult life, and this is what I thought of you guys. You're a bunch of hypocrites. You preach one thing, and you practice something entirely different. I saw it over and over again. I'm not sure. There were certainly true Christians that had come into my life at different points, but most of the people, I just considered them to be hypocrites. You tell me to do this. I'm, tell me I'm supposed to do that. And, and I look at your life, and I don't see you doing it. As a matter of fact, very often I see you doing the exact opposite. The world sees us as self-righteous because very often we show ourselves to be exactly that. Self-righteous. We think more highly of ourselves than we think of other people. And even when it comes to dealing with sin, it's very easy for us to condemn other people for doing usually sometimes the exact same things that we do. Let me just say this to you this morning. The, the world is never going to take us serious until we are, we are truthful to the world about our own sin. Let me tell you, if you ever share the gospel with anybody, the end product of it has a lot to do with the attitude that you have going into it. And if you have a self-righteous attitude going into it, don't think for one minute you're probably going to accomplish much of anything. We were talking about evangelism in Sunday school last Sunday. And, uh, you know, every, every person that's been converted has a testimony. You know, and that is how God worked in my life to bring me to faith in Jesus Christ. Where he brought me from to where I am now. Giving him all the credit for it, by the way. It's not because of what we've done, it's because of what he has done. Now let me tell you, when you do, when you do, do evangelism presentations and you've come across as self-righteous, you're gonna, you're gonna, they're going to shut down. And they're not going to listen to another word you have to say. You're going to accomplish a whole lot more if you are actually honest with them about your own continued struggles, even now. Paul says some very interesting things. 
I mean, explains why this is going on in him. He says in verse 17, so now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells in me. In other words, he understands that there is two aspects to Paul. That he has a desire, he has, a, has an intention toward holiness and keeping God's law and, and etc. And just remember, when he went to, we said this last week, that when he was converted, when he had that confrontation with Jesus on the road to Damascus, there was a sense in which the old Paul died on that road. And God breathed life into someone who was otherwise dead. Could God bring us to the point of perfect holiness at the time of our conversion? Well, he could. He could, but he does not do that. His reasons, I can't tell you, because I don't have God's mind. But Paul, and what he says here is, 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 and, I, and let me just say this, people want to come up with analogies, and some people may say, well, you know, Christians, they're just like schizophrenics. They have dual personalities. You know, sometimes there are these holy, sinless, godly people, and other times they're, they're whatever. They're like split personalities. But you know, to be diagnosed with split personality, one of the key things is this is neither of those personalities knows the other one even exists. This is another one of those mystery things. We, we've talked about the mystery of the Trinity, and we've talked about the mystery of the person of Christ. And we talked a little bit last week about the mystery of the Christian, how it is that we can be, in a sense, declared holy by God, but at the same time, continue to have sin as part of our picture there's nothing no analogy you can use to describe what we're talking about don't think of yourself as as being a schizophrenic with dual personalities that's not accurate it's not an accurate picture of what we're talking about so what analogy should you use there is none there's nothing that comes close to it you are unique, or we are unique as believers when it comes to these things. But Paul is, is in essence saying that in all of this, that he knows that there's still some of life left in the old Paul. And it's that aspect of who he is that's causing the trouble. And that's what he's referring to, to the flesh. I want to say this, you know, we're going we're gonna to be studying through this type of thinking all the way through chapter 8, but when we get to chapter 8, Paul brings things to a head in a statement that he makes. Now, I've shared that with you a few times already. 
And what he's going to be arguing for in chapter 8 is this, is that we are supposed to be involved in putting that vestige of sin in us to death. Not just accepting it, not just going on with life as life is, but to be actively involved by the power of the Spirit, by putting sin that remains in us to death. Not being satisfied where we're at. Growing in faith. And dying more and more to sin. On the day that we die, our physical body dies, unless Jesus comes back first, there will still be sin in even the best of us. It's so easy for people to become complacent when it comes to this sort of thing. It's so easy for people to develop the attitude, well, that's just how things are. There's nothing I can do about it, so I just need to go with the flow. Let me tell you guys, that is an anti-Christian attitude. There's no place we're encouraged to have that mindset in the Bible at all. And let's just be honest this morning. It's very easy for us. Well, one of the things we asked this candidate on Friday morning is this, so do you have any besetting sins? Do you have any sins that you know, you know they're just obvious to you that you really struggle with and every now and then you think you got a handle on it and the next thing you know you really don't? They always have them. And we're happy they do. Because it tells us they really understand who they are. That they are sinners in desperate need of a Savior to do for them what they cannot do for themselves. To continue to do for them what they cannot do for themselves. Yeah, I would say to you this morning that God certainly has reasons for leaving that vestige of sin in all of us. And I would imagine one of those is this, is to constantly drive us over and over again to the cross of Jesus Christ. Because he knows how we are. The better we do, the more puffed up and proud we get. God has left this in us for a purpose. It's not that he, he saw it there, but he just kind of passed over it and thinking, I'll deal with that later on, or maybe he forgot about it somewhere along the way, or something like that. He has left this vestige of sin in us for a reason. And the reason, my friends, probably a number of reasons, but the principal one is this, is to drive you and I on our knees before Christ in the throne of grace repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly to humble us. To prevent us from being puffed up and proud and self-righteous. He brings things to a head in verse 21. I find then the principle that, that evil is present in me. Can you sit here this morning and admit to yourself that there is a vestige of sin in me. There is evil that still lurks in my heart. 
even though you wish to do good. Do you wish to do good? Do you have the wanting, the wishing, the desiring to do good? Do you have a passion for doing what is right in the eyes of God? Really? And honestly, you've heard me say this before, that it's, it's so easy for even Christians to develop a retirement mentality. You know, I worked my life and I did my thing and, and whatever, and I'm getting older now, so I don't need to go to work and this, that, and the other, and, and whatever. It's so easy for people to lapse into the idea that, that when I get older, then I can just back off the gas as far as being a believer. I can slow things down as far as my walk with the Christ. And what I would say to you, that's exactly the opposite of what, a, what ought to be happening. And that is you get older, you should be growing more and more, and the more you're growing more and more, the more active and engaged you will become. Retirement is for unbelievers. When it comes to things like that. Now don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that retiring from work is a bad thing. It's not. But you know what I would love to see more and more? is people seeing it for what it is. It gives you more opportunity to be about your father's business than you were restricted from as you were confined to working 40 or 50 or 60 hours a week. It gives you a lot more time to be doing the work of Christ. Not less. It is not your time to do whatever you want to do with. It is your special time of service to your Lord. What that service looks like is going to be different for everybody. You know, we're in an older congregation now, and it'd be very easy for me to, and let me tell you something, I'm getting older too. I'll be 67 in just a few weeks. I'm tired. I got joints that are hurting and, you know, this, that, and the other, and I don't sleep hardly very well at all anymore, and a lot of the same complaints that I hear from people in this room. You're here for a reason. Everyone in this room is still here for a reason. And that reason is to serve him. So don't fall into the trap. Don't. I tell you what, some of the greatest joys in life I've ever experienced has been working side by side with people in this church doing sometimes very menial things. Washing dishes, pulling weeds. Seriously. Be a part. all you can that leads us to the Lord's Supper 
Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me.